This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's largest health care insurer says it has cut its office space footprint by half. It calls it a strategic move toward hybrid remote work born out of the pandemic. HMSA President Mark Mugiushi talked to us yesterday afternoon. We had gotten wind of the termination of a lease on Kapilani Boulevard close to our studios. So actually, you know, we've been in the process of terminating several leases that we no longer use for a variety of reasons. I think the building you're referring to is 1601 Kapilani, where we had three floors. So two of them, we were able to let those leases go and keep one. But we have some other leases around the state and Oahu and other islands that we no longer need. And part of it is just because of the way we're adapting to a flexible hybrid work environment as we come out of the pandemic. Yes, and there was lots of talk about that, about what happens post-pandemic and during the recovery. But I think you folks might be among the first to actually you know, be very strategic about moving forward. Yes, we're trying to be very strategic. In fact, I would say probably the mantra that we're using is that we're going to use the office as a tool and not as a destination. So we're asking our managers and executives to bring people in when they have specific activities that relate to the four C's, which are collaboration, connection, creativity, and culture. And if you're trying to do things that require that and are complex, you need to do those in person. Otherwise, if work can be done remotely, then by all means, please have that work done remotely. And we're discovering that by giving this flexibility, number one, employees are more happy. And number two, it also allows us to be more flexible with how much real estate we hold on to. And that will help us with our quest for affordability. Yeah, I mean, because that's overhead. Absolutely. And, you know, whatever overhead we have that we can reduce, that's less that the cost of health care will be. As everybody transitioned, you know, the big question was, okay, how do we do this? How do we work remotely? Do we have enough laptops? What about security? And can employees use their own home computers? How did you folks tackle those problems? Yeah, so as you know, the healthcare industry is very strict about security and safeguards to protect everybody's health information. So we have a chief information security officer Uh, who worked very, very closely with our entire IT base under a very experienced chief information officer, uh, Rick Hopfer. And the two of them together devised a plan to allow us to really improve technology so that a lot of work can be done safely and effectively. I mean, technology should be just as important as the office as creating a space where people can do work and accomplish the same things that they could do in person, except for those four C's that I talked about. And so, gosh, did you have to come up with more computers for your employees early on? Yeah, different different requirements. So early on, you know, we were able to pivot pretty fast. When the pandemic first hit, we had to get everyone home. So within a week, we could do that. And then as time evolved, we could fix the shortcomings that that initial rush had to do. So now I think we're in a place where For the most part, people who are working remotely feel like they have all the tools that they need. And I think as more and more of this happens, there will be just better tools, better platforms, different kinds of things that will allow people to do. A lot of the things that we took for granted in the past had to be done in person. And so can you give us, I guess, a bird's eye view, you know, like how much square footage have you cut from your overhead? Well, you know, we got rid of those two floors in 1601. We had three floors of offices in Kapolei, and we got rid of two of those as well. We have a couple of neighbor island offices on Maui and Kona that we could get rid of and move people into the neighborhood centers in those areas. We had an ETF office in downtown that we were able to consolidate into another place, foundation office on Peekoi Street. And we had space in the first interstate building, which we were able to also release. So it's quite a bit of square footage. Do you think that that you might be the largest lessee when it comes to downtown you know, office space? Well, now most of our office space now we own ourselves. So, you know, HMSA Center on Keomoku is our own building. We own it and we're able, with this hybrid, flexible work environment, we're able to get almost all our employees into this one building, which is also great because then when we do collaborate, when we do bring people in, 
our whole employee base is kind of in centralized in one place as opposed to scattered all over the place. So this is all part of, gosh, cost cutting, you know, saving money, uh, but looking for more efficient ways to operate. Absolutely. And also thinking about our organizational health, because I think a lot of employees now, as you've read about, I'm sure everywhere, are trying to prioritize in their own lives. How can I have a flexible work environment that allows me to make sure I have work-life balance. And I think by hearing that, that this is important to our employees and making sure that we accommodate that, we're showing that we want to be an employer of choice and we want to make sure that our employees are productive because you know they can work in settings that allow them to have this work-life balance. And gosh, so as far as in the square footage that you're giving up, do you have a sense as to what that is? I don't know okay. exactly how much it is altogether, but I would say it's it's probably we cut our, our footprint almost in half. And then what about the employees that are affected by this? What percentage do you think? Well, again, you know, like I said, all our employees are still here. Many of them are working remotely. So during the height of the pandemic, when we didn't have a hybrid environment, it was just basically remote. All the buildings were essentially empty. And now we're bringing them back for specific functions as opposed to a certain amount of time, right? So they're, they're coming back when the work that they're doing is collaborative and to create connections. For example, onboarding a new employee. The best way to onboard a new employee is to meet them in person and to help them build a connection. So on that time, that department will be in person. They'll meet the new employee. They'll help them get acclimated to the culture of HMSA. So then they'll be here. But that's not going to happen all at once for every department, so there'll be space in the building for, you know, people to do it when, when the time has come. So, I, you know, I, I think there'll be plenty of space. I, I don't think it will actually affect whether an employee will have the space that they need. You know, I would just say that besides the fact that the pandemic changed a lot of the way employees think about their work-life balance and how they want their life to be, the other thing that we did notice is over the course of the last more than the pandemic, maybe the last five years, the majority of our employees now are millennials or younger, right? So we used to be primarily a baby boomer kind of employer, and now more than 50% are Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, and they are looking for work-life balance. That is a priority to them. So if employers want to focus on the things that are important to their employees, they're going to have to really consider carefully these strategies that allow hybrid work environments. Okay. But then again, you mentioned security for privacy, patient information. That's key. Yeah, absolutely. We are investing very, very heavily in making sure we have the most secure systems possible and protecting, as we always have, safeguarding our, our members' information. Well, this pandemic certainly has taught us many lessons. Even the delivery of care, as you know, right, has shifted a lot to doing some things online and uh, remotely. You know, there's good and bad to that, but the really important thing is when access is lacking, this is another way to bring access, and so it's a good thing in that yes. regard. Telemedicine in to rural areas, you know, that, that finally gets moved up. Absolutely. That was Mark Mugishi, president of HMSA, talking about the changing face of healthcare coming out of this pandemic. Last fall, HMSA reported it would trim its staff by close to 300 workers. It planned to outsource some of those jobs and invest in high-tech advances to become more efficient. Now it's cut back on office space. This week on This American Life, Sandy was born with a voice. Three active range, effortless. So what's it mean when he makes a decision that gets rid of it? I sat down at the piano. I hit a middle C, and I could not sing it. My voice was, like, gone. That's this week. Beginning Saturday afternoon at 1. Follow the money. On our reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat looks at contracts awarded to a Maui company caught up in a corruption scandal. Reporter Blaze Level joins us today. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, morning, Catherine. 
So, yeah, this uh, has to do with the wastewater company that uh, we've heard uh, quite a bit about. <laughs> right. So we looked at contracts awarded to this company called H2O Process Systems. They got about $12 million worth of sole source contracts from Maui County um, for in a pretty short period of time, just three uh, years between about 2015 to 2018. And H2O Process Systems... For you listeners, that name might sound familiar. Its owner is Milton Troy, who's, you know, as you know, at the center of this ongoing federal investigation into bribery of public officials and um, government corruption. Yes, and in that case, uh, two lawmakers um, uh, went down, uh, Maui Senator Kalani English and uh, Representative Ty Cullen. Yeah, that's right. Troy, Troy is the local uh, business owner and um, really prolific political donor who bribed both of those two lawmakers as part of this uh, of federal investigation, which is still ongoing. And I spoke to Mr. Troy's attorney, Mike Green, last week, and you know he said he's expecting uh, Milton Troy to be charged in the coming weeks, and he's advised him to plead guilty. And, and that's kind of why we decided to take another look at these Maui contracts. You know, H two O processes that we got a lot of work over the islands, but in particular, they got a lot of contracts, um, as I said, in that short time period from Maui County for wastewater work. And they've got other uh, no-bid sole source awards in other counties, right? Right. Like, uh, they were the company that was cleaning city buses during the pandemic and going and spraying them over so that they could be uh, used every day. But they, they got the most... I think on Maui County, $12 million worth of, I keep using this word sole source, and what that means is that, uh, you know, the county officials who approve the contracts believe that uh, this company is the only one that can deliver the system that is necessary uh, for the wastewater system, for it to be upgraded or for it to keep operating. Um, part of it came from, you know, a series of lawsuits and a federal consent decree over the state, the poor state actually, of the wastewater infrastructure on Maui, and there's greater attention put on, um, you know, trying to use more recycled wastewater to irrigate crops. But to do that, you need, you need a pretty high grade of wastewater, right? It has to be kind of clean, clean enough for you to water plants with. And, and the parts necessary to accomplish that, at least partially so, was provided by H2O Process Systems uh, and other companies that helped to move that process along. So these uh, were services that supposedly they could do, only they could do? Yes. So, so one of the biggest uh, contracts they got was for this new filtration system from a company called Aqua Aerobic Systems. I think they're based in Chicago. But uh, they're the only authorized vendor that could sell these products in Hawaii. And so only they could provide that filter that the county you know, believed it needed to um do a better job of cleaning its water. But it's not just those, uh, those filters. You know, H2O process systems provided a range of different pumps and pipes and they call them blowers and grinders and all the other things you need to clean wastewater in this state. Um, and, and they weren't alone. Um, this switch to try to produce uh, more recycled water, um, it, it appears other companies got, you know, some... Uh, big contracts too, like providing new disinfection systems for the county, but no one got as much as H2O process systems. And so, gosh, I, I guess it just uh, uh, remains to be seen, you know, um, what comes down uh, if he's in fact uh, indicted um, as his lawyer believes he will. Right. It does beg a lot of questions. And we're not really certain for yet what exactly Milton Troy will be charged with. Uh, he hasn't actually been charged yet, and he hasn't even been formally named by the FBI or by the Department of Justice. He's only referred to as Person A, you know, in these court documents. He's only been identified um, by the media. But his lawyer has previously told us that he's expected to face uh, charges similar to those of the legislators who have already pleaded guilty to uh, bribery charges. It's supposed to be um, something related to wire fraud and, and um, uh, charges like that. Right, and uh, Kalani English got 40 months for taking bribes, and uh, Ty Cullen, uh, I think, is going to be sentenced in October. 
in October, that's correct. I think Kalani English uh, was supposed to report to the mainland uh, sometime last week. All right. Well, thank you so much, Blaze. It's interesting reading. Okay. Yeah, thanks. That was reporter Blaze Lovell with today's Reality Check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we focus in on one of our favorite flora, a tree that is a big part of Hawaii's history. The kukui was one of the original canoe plants brought to the islands by the first settlers. The nut that grows on these pale green trees has an amazing variety of uses. It could be roasted and chopped and used as a spice. Fishermen would also chew the nuts and spit them on the water to break the surface tension and remove reflections from the surface, allowing them to look into the depths. The oil from the nuts was used as a lotion or a laxative or a salve. It was also used as fuel for candles or when uh, kernels were strung together and lit, it was used as a torch. Other parts of the tree can also produce various colored dyes, including the outer shell of the nuts, which was used for tattoos. For today's Backyard Quiz, we are focused on the tree's blossoms. Here's a question. The delicate white kukui blossoms are the official flower of what island? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello. I'm Rabbi Steve Leader, author of For You When I Am Gone. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about essential questions to tell a life story. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. In the sun Kokua Arkeiki, the Big Island's Helion bus service, is doing just that. HPR's Sabrina Bowden joins us this morning to talk about how bus drivers are offering our young people help. Think of the bus as a safe space, right? Yeah, that's kind of the idea, Catherine. Uh, so the Hawaii Island Mass Transit System, uh, their Heleon bus, recently introduced a new partnership with the National Safe Place Network. And that basically means that the Safe Place Network will provide training and different materials to drivers to help them help kids who are in distress. 
and Judith Clark, she's the executive director of the Hawaii Youth Services Network. And she advocates on behalf of youth and uh, young adults. And she's an informal advisor uh, for the Heleon program, as well as she sits on the National Safe Place Places Advisory Board. Uh, she says like, a child in distress can present in a few different ways. Just about half of our juvenile arrests are for status offenses, things like running away from home or being truant from school, which would not be offenses for adults. And they were very concerned that many of their peers were winding up with criminal records uh, because they chose to leave an intolerable situation at home um, or they were being bullied at school and were afraid to come on the campus. Um, And so they said, we need safe places we can go to before we get in trouble. And this concept isn't new. The National Safe Place Network has been around since the 80s and has representation in nearly 40 other states. Um, And what's interesting about this model on the Big Island is that it's transit-based. So if somebody goes to a driver and says they can't go home or go to school, the driver can discreetly notify dispatch and help will arrive along the way. So it's not disrupting anybody else. Um, And in other models, Clark says a safe place can be a public library or businesses that are open late. When an organization agrees to be a safe place, they get training on what to do when a youth presents for help, and they are provided with a 24-hour number they can call where a trained person will triage the situation and take action as needed, uh, which can be as simple as driving Johnny back home, or it could involve uh, determining it's not safe for him to go home tonight and getting him into an emergency shelter and then getting child welfare services involved if need be. But most importantly, ensuring that there's follow-up with the youth and family to address the situation that caused them to seek help. And that can be everything from family counseling and anger management classes uh, to linking them with the local food bank. You know, I'm surprised that um, we haven't heard of this before here uh, in Hawaii, that we haven't tried it if it's been around in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because, like, even with this uh, transit model, it's it, it really surprised me to sort of learn that, you know, that somebody can reach out to a student or a kid just along the bus route. So they would either dispatch, like, the office of the prosecuting attorney, police, or maybe the Salvation Army or different groups that would you know, benefit the kid. Yeah, and so I can see how, yeah, a child, you know, would be willing to go with, with auntie, you know, and mm-hmm. talk about what the situation is. But it's it's nice to to see that space, in, you know, on the bus as a safe space. Yeah, and what I think makes this a really good model on the Big Island is that, you know, for the next couple years, the Heleon system is free. You know, they donated, or I guess they put their uh, COVID money into the system so it also promotes use of the bus um, and drivers and nonprofits on island will be trained specifically so I mean it's a good like push of different resources and how are they getting the word out uh, to our young people so they're reaching out to different nonprofits uh, they're going to go into schools and there's going to be different decals uh, there's going to be advertisements specifically on the buses so that you can sort of learn about it too Part of the effort is going to need to be outreach so that young people and their families know what Safe Place is and what it can do. You know, obviously, because this is a new program, the transit system staff are going to need training. Um, They're going to need to be, you know, and there will need to be linkages built with local agencies like the Salvation Army and Child and Family Service and Family Support Services of West Hawaii and the YW and YMCAs and Boys and Girls Clubs. All of those resources that are out there and wanting to help and providing a variety of services that are needed, but not necessarily known to the individual um, at the time they need them. So this can really help uh, ensure the safety of youth and link them and their families with services to help them grow and thrive. That's a great idea. Mm -hmm. It's all about like the continuum of care. Yeah, and I can see how that might be a little bit more difficult to implement uh, somewhere like here on Oahu, you know, where you just have tons of people, you know, coming and going on the bus, but maybe on the neighbor Mm -hmm. islands. Yeah, it's like the perfect place to try it. 
Yeah. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. We have been talking to HBR's Sabrina Bowden uh, about the new uh, services being offered on the Helion bus network on the Big Island. Check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's 2022-2023 season, performing Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the full film with live music, October 29th and 30th. Tickets at myhso.org. On the next Fresh Air, comedian Mo Ammer. He's a Palestinian whose family fled the first Gulf War, so he grew up in Houston from the age of nine. He speaks Arabic, Spanish, and the kind of English that puts Texans at ease. He's done two Netflix comedy specials, and he stars in a new Netflix series based on his life called Mo. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. uncertainty around health, the economy, education, and travel. Simple pleasures like seeing a movie with friends or catching up with family over the holiday took on a precarious tone. Doesn't sound exactly like fertile ground for a good night's sleep. So just how well did people sleep during the pandemic? The conversation Savannah Harriman posed that question to sleep specialist Dr. Valerie Cacho. So during the pandemic, my patients in Hawaii who no longer had to commute in to town and they lived on one side of the island. Actually, a couple of them did sleep longer. And it was pretty surprising to me. One gentleman I can think of, he was sleeping just an hour longer, didn't change his activity level, didn't change his diet, but he lost a significant amount of weight. So it's really important how if you get better quality sleep, some of your hormones and metabolism are better controlled, your blood sugar can be better controlled, and your health can actually really improve. What's the relationship between how we sleep and our immune system, our ability to fight off infection? That's really an interesting question. So if you don't get enough sleep, and typically we say less than six hours or even less than seven hours, it's an inflammatory state for our body, right? So we have these proteins called cytokines, which can actually increase, and they promote sleep. So the sleep system and the immune system actually share similar, similar genes. And so if you have an infection, um, whether it be COVID or even just the regular cold, you need actually more cytokines to help. And when you don't get enough sleep, you, have, you make less cytokines. And so you can have more illnesses. So it's actually a pretty interesting research study at, at Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh, where they took sort of healthy volunteers and they, see, they monitored how long that they slept for. Um, and then they actually gave them the cold virus by dropping some of the virus into their nose. And then they monitor them for them for a week and they collect their, like, their mucus levels. So it was a pretty sophisticated study. And they found out that the uh, participants in the study who slept less than six hours a night the week prior were four times more likely to catch a cold. So it's pretty neat because actually the intervention was giving someone a virus and seeing what happened. So getting at least seven hours was more protective from immune standpoint, right? You get a stronger immune system. But if you slept less than six hours, pretty high chance of getting, getting a cold four times fold. Four times fold. Okay. Okay. That's compelling. <laughs> 164 volunteers. Yeah. So it's a great okay. study. 
prior to COVID-19, there was always flu season. There were always other infections that people were at risk for. And I remember the advice I was raised with, you know, wash your hands, vitamin C, those types of things, a good diet, not too much sugar. I don't really recall sleep coming up. Do you find that the concept of, you know, just get enough sleep is novel to people? I think people know it, but they ignore it. You know, almost like, well, we know we should eat more fruits and vegetables. We should have high fiber diets. But, you know, life is rich of fast foods, sweet foods, yummy tasting foods. And unfortunately, those things aren't as attractive. So just like sleep, right? There's a lot of things that sort of compete for our attention when we're awake, right? And so if you're going to have like entertainment, right, at your fingertips, you know, social media, um, nonstop streaming, right? You know, why would you want to sleep <laughs> almost, right? Because we want to be entertained. We want to have that pleasure, just like the pleasure from fruit. Like, why do we want to eat the vegetables if they don't necessarily taste good? We know it's good for our body, but, you know, we don't always do what's best for us sometimes up until we have that wake up call. So one of my favorite sayings is, you know, we change when we either uh, see the light or feel the burn. So sometimes it takes a little bit of pain from repeatedly getting sick or, you know, some people don't start using um, their CPAP machines for their sleep apnea up until they have a heart attack or stroke. It's like sometimes people need that wake up call, even though they know they should get their health in check. What do we know specifically about the relationship between sleep and COVID-19? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, if you're not getting an adequate amount of sleep, then potentially you're at increased risk because your immune system isn't working as well. Sleep deprivation as a whole, and I know some of the research on this, is people who tend to be overweight or obese tended to have more severe COVID illnesses, right? And so, you know, people who don't sleep well, you know, because of the hormones and metabolism tend to have higher BMIs. Um, so that could portend to more severe COVID illness. But mm -hmm. I would just assume it's something on the similar lines, right? If your immune system is compromised from not getting enough quality sleep, then more susceptible um, to getting an infection. And, and early on, there was a small study in China where people took Ambien, right? And so it put you into the sleep. Did they have less rates of COVID? Yeah, but it was also a really small study. So, mm -hmm. and then a lot of people were taking melatonin as sort of a protectant um, during the pandemic. I don't know if we have any randomized controlled trials that say that melatonin was actually protective, but melatonin can be seen as really protective and sort of an anti-inflammatory. It's interesting from the disease model of breast cancer, right? So women who have breast cancer, if they take melatonin, they are less likely at risk to have a secondary event of breast cancer. So it may have some anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer uh, effects to that. Um, but in the prevention of the COVID-19 virus, I don't know if we really have all the data to support that. What's the uh, biggest mystery when it comes to sleep? What do we not know? We don't have a magic switch. So a lot of people in the US, I think, want that magic pill. I mean, there are FDA approved medications, hypnotic agents that can help someone sleep. But believe me, I've had patients who've been on all of the FDA approved medication and they're looking for the next one, the better one, the stronger one. So what sleep is, is sleep is when your brain waves slow down. And a lot of people who have insomnia or if you have acute stress or even some, you know, genetic conditions where it can keep you from sleeping, um, sometimes insomnia can run in the family or a lot of mental health conditions, it can be really hard to sleep. And so learning the tools to how to slow down your brain waves, I like to think of sleep like a dimmer. You turn down the stress response, and then you turn up the relaxation response. So at least to my knowledge, we don't have that magical switch. I think a lot of people hope it's in cannabis <laughs> because of, that's very widely used, CBD, CBN, to help improve sleep. But I have patients that has the opposite effect. And for you, where and when do you get the best sleep and where and when do you get the worst sleep? I have two young children. So I, I get the best sleep when they're asleep and they're not crawling into my bed or crying at night. I'm very mindful with my bedroom, protecting my time, um, because I know that those boundaries are really, 
really important. I do my best to shut work off at a certain time, stop checking emails, stop having that busy mind interact with my restful state, right? I want to slow down my brain waves. Yes, I am, you know, no one's a perfect sleeper 100% of the time. So I do admit I am on my phone at the night or in the evening time, but I try my best not to look at the news, look at anything that's too stimulating, anything that could be sort of triggering from an emotional standpoint. I like to keep things light. Um, I like to listen to sort of guided imagery. I'm trained in clinical hypnotherapy, so I can do like self-hypnosis and that helps me relax. So I get my best sleep. Um, well, A, when I decide to, when I prioritize it and when I set myself up for being able to have a good night's sleep. That was Dr. Valerie Cacho, a integrative sleep physician with Sleep Life Med on Oahu. She was talking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about sleep and our immune system. Dr. Cacho makes a strong case for getting more sleep, but what about those who work the graveyard shift? We'll explore that tomorrow. We do want to hear how you're sleeping. How do you make sure you get a good night's rest? We did hear from mom Sarah from Kamuki about sleep training her young son as someone who often has trouble sleeping herself. She wants to make sure her son has all the tools he needs for a good night's sleep. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, I've watched him enviously sometimes at nighttime. So, oh, he's able to just lie in that crib and then relax and then eventually drift off to sleep without any sleep aids. And that's so nice. And he does. He does have some sleep aids. Like he does have a sound machine. And it's probably my own projection, but I give him music to fall asleep to, too. Claire de Lune, one of my favorites. Well, one thing I read is that when you're the classical music or the lullaby music is not as much for the kid, but it's for the parents, like to relax you both as you're trying to soothe back down to sleep. And Claire de Lune is a big favorite of mine. It was really important to me early on in his life do the sleep training. I did the research and I felt like sleep training was the best way to go for him and to really set a routine and get him, you know, and I think this will be ongoing his whole life, but to get him into this idea of winding down the body, winding down the mind. So it's definitely at the forefront of my parenting with him and I very much hope that he doesn't have these same issues that I have. Well, sounds like the little guy's off to a good start. And you can share your thoughts and sleep stories on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or fill out our sleep survey at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Over in the UK, people are protesting high energy prices by not paying their high energy bills. Credit rating becomes unimportant when you've got to decide between paying for your energy or caring for your children. And for a lot of people, that's the stage it's got to. I'm Kai Rizdal. Don't pay, won't pay. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Monday, September 19th. More by searching Osher Hawaii.
today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about the kukui, the versatile candlenut tree that is a member of the Spurge family. It was brought to you, or brought to the islands by the first Polynesian voyagers who no doubt prized it for its variety of uses. They made medicine and fuel from its oils, ink for tattoos from the charred nuts, and fishing canoes from the tree trunks. A medicine made from the nut was said to lower high blood pressure. Fishermen used its oil to waterproof their nets, and they spread the oil over the surface of the ocean, creating an oily film that made it easier to see fish below the surface. The sap and small white flowers were used for a variety of medicinal applications. Kukui nut lays were often worn by hula dancers, kahuna, and ali'i, and were used by some as prayer tokens to capture spiritual energy. The multi-purpose tree was the obvious choice when it was designated as our official state tree in 1959. And its blossoms are the official flower of the island of, drumroll please, Molokai, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Oh, we had a bunch of calls on this, but congrats to Lemomi from Honolulu. You got it right. You have an idea for a backyard quiz? Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Waikiki plays host to the Duke Ocean Fest. This is the 20th year the festival honors uh, Duke Hanamoku, the Olympic swimmer and all-round ocean sportsman. The events include everything from surfing to canoe paddling to foiling and more for the young and old related to the water. There is even beach volleyball. A south swell bump is adding to the action as surfing dogs took to the lineup this morning. The week-long festival also features two films. The acclaimed Waterman film about Duke Hanamoku will be featured in a sunset on the beach in Waikiki on Thursday night. But there will be also a film featured at the historic Hawaii Theater tomorrow night. It's entitled Joey Cabell, The Legend of Surf, and it highlights surfer star Joey Cabell. Do you know that he had a catamaran called the Hokulea? We talk with Cabell and Ocean Fest Jim Fulton about the events underway. Joey, you are the you're the star of an event uh, over at the Hawaii Theater. I understand that there was this was a film that Spectrum uh, put together on your life. It was quite a quite an honor actually for them to do that, and uh, I can't wait to see it myself. I haven't seen it yet. Oh my gosh, that's terrific! So so you you'll have your eyes on it like everybody else. That's it. I'll be. Uh, it starts at the Hawaii Theater on Wednesday. Doors open at 5 o'clock. There will be a talk story on stage at 6, and the movie starts at 7. And also, after the movie's over, we're having uh, everyone that wants to come to the chart house for, for, for a party at the end of the movie. Chart House Waikiki. I'm looking forward to uh, being there. I think that we have uh, fun people there for the talk story. We have Vicki Heldridge, Mickey Mignot, Gail Hope, and there'll be a few others, too. We're looking forward to getting up there, and, and everybody can and talk about the period that the movie's all about. And so take us back to that time. It was special. I, I just uh, launched the Catamaran Hokulea. 1975, and the uh, voyaging, okay, this is interesting. The name of the boat is the same as the voyaging, Hawaiian voyaging canoe, and uh, we both came up with it around the same time. I, on my own, was looking for a way to come back to Hawaii after sailing to Tahiti, and our tourist is above uh, the Hawaiian Islands, and that's the name of the star in Hawaiian, our tourist. So I had it on my stern of the boat, and when, when the Hokulea Hawaiian Voyager Q got launched, they had the same name because of the same idea, right? They were going south. They had to have a, a good way to come back. And talk about what your life on the ocean has, has been like. I mean, gosh, this whole ocean fest, you know, just pays homage to the Duke and all the watermen of that era. Right. There's, you know, obviously there's really a lot of a great waterman in that period, and even especially today, of course. And during that time, uh, we are all 
spent time in the ocean one way or another, surfing for me throughout my most of my early life and building boats and sailing uh, also. So going on out beyond the surf line, after you got that pretty well understood, then you want to, oh, I want to go out across that ocean, you know, so you have to build a boat to do that. And that kind of experience you get now over the years. So you'll be able to see my voyage because I took many rolls of eight millimeter film. So the movie that we're all going to see shows what happened on the voyage returning from Tahiti to Hawaii. So it was all done on film and uh, a lot of it, Spectrum took our footage and made their own version of the story. It, you know, I can't wait to see it, I said. I haven't seen it. Well, that's pretty exciting, you know, and, and as you uh, reflect on your time, you know, in the water, you know, what is it that you would like to convey to the young up-and-coming watermen and women out there? Uh, I think you have to want it. I'll give you my example, getting on, on a bus, going to first grade in Waikiki, looking out the window and seeing people surfing in Queens. I wanted it. And I came back the next year and never missed this year of surfing for all the way to late into the 70s. So you have to want it. And if you want it, you will get it, right? You have to it's, You have to earn it. It's like every, every thing that comes along, you have to earn the next level and the next level. And if you want it, you'll get it. And uh, those are our best surfers today. Yeah, I mean, really, this year, quite a year with Carissa Moore winning gold at the Olympics. You know, you've got the film Waterman, you know, uh, hitting theaters across the globe. I mean, it's really, this is the year for surf. And boy, talk about it. We have a huge swell right now in Waikiki, huge. And Jim, recap for us. You know, how's this surf going to affect the events that we've got planned for the for the rest of the week? I mean, uh, we there will be the uh, the sunset on the beach with the Waterman film there. Yeah, I mean, the, the good news is you have surf, and over the years we've had you know we've had we've had surf uh, sometime, and, and and other times we've had not much at all. But but uh, the surf today is exciting. We hope it lasts a couple of days so that you get a chance to legends, get a chance to surf on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And, you know, you mentioned Carissa Moore um, and her Olympic debut this year. Well, along with the Waterman on, on, on Thursday night, we are running a, a very short film uh, on Carissa Moore and, and talking about her Olympic experience as well. And so that, that Thursday night, the Waterman uh, Waikiki Nights, uh, presented by Ojai. It's going to be a spectacular evening. You know, the good news, if you remember, back during COVID, the the beach was replenished with about 38,000 cubic yards of sand. So, we've got plenty of sand in front of the uh, the surf tower right now, and we think we're going to have plenty of room for um, uh, for people to come and and watch and participate. And we don't feel that there's a, there's a safety issue at all. We're going to have a real show for uh, the surfers and the folks that are on the water competing for the rest of the week. Yeah, this is our 20th year of, of doing Ocean Fest, and it's, uh, I mean, I, I know that the Duke is out there watching us and, and, and smiling. So this has been the most, uh, people coming together, particularly since we are just coming back from, from COVID, and you just, you feel the the, the excitement on the beach and, and everybody kind of pulling together and in ways they should in the, in the Hawaiian ways. And so it's really it's really gratifying to see this after 20 years. 20 years. We've been hearing from Jim Fulton and Joey Cabell. Cabell will be featured in the film Joey Cabell, The Legend of Surf, playing at the historic Hawaii Theater tomorrow night, which happens to be the Duke's birthday. Here's a clip from that film. There isn't a day that goes by that I haven't first checked the ocean before I decide what my plans are for that day. If it's windy, I'll go sailing. If the surf's up, I'll surf. If it is flat and calm, I'll dive for dinner. The passion for the ocean runs deep in my veins as it goes for a thousand of other surfers who make the ocean their lifestyle. Go deep and keep surfing. 
I'm totally involved with the ocean, totally. Ever been as much as I've ever been. I usually sail at least two times a week. And the reason for that is I can share the experience with other people. And for me, that works really well. And I'm still out surfing the ocean with this boat, so I'm still connected, totally connected. Joey's connections go back decades as a Renaissance man, world-class waterman, an entrepreneur, and most importantly, revolutionizing surfing both in California and Hawaii. Riding high today are the Americans, and Joe Cabell has company as he turns in the best performance of the day. When all the points are tallied, Joe Cabell brings the title back to the United States. It's a, a wonderful high that I got, and I think anyone that surfs gets to, or they wouldn't surf. And in the 1960s, Cabell reached the highest pinnacle of the sport and became one of the finest all-around surfers in the world, winning multiple surf championships across several continents with a combination of power and precision. Groundbreaking traits that led Surfer Magazine to call him one of the 25 surfers who changed the sport. And moviegoers are invited to a post-film party at the Classic Steakhouse and Watering Hole, the Chart House Waikiki, where Cabell is part owner. Look for links for the competition for Manihuni and our surf legends, as well as other events, on the conversation page of our website later today. The festival and Sunday. Well, that's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow, we look at a comeback for a world-class competitive athletic event, the Ironman World Championship in Kona. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling or talk back line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.